This morning we're switching gears to a new series on the the book of James. And um, I tell you, I've been looking forward to this one for, for quite a while now. You know, a, a few weeks ago I was sharing with a, a friend uh, this, this game plan and he asked me, he said, why are you always preaching through books rather than topics? And I thought, fair question. You know, if you come to Spring Hill, you normally don't hear a sermon series on like marriage or finances or parenting, right? Um, you, you, you hear sermon series on like King David or, or Ruth, David, uh, David's life, uh, Jonathan's life. But I felt like his question was probably one we should ask together, right? Not just that I give to him, but one that we, we think about as uh, in this cultural moment of time. Because you can download, really, if you think about this, any podcast tomorrow morning, and you can get the best sermon, the best teaching on, on some, some topic that you choose in the country all week long, right? But at Spring Hill, we typically don't put our focus there, and there, there's a deliberate reason for that. I want to just spend a minute or two talking with you about that, because as I thought about his question, um, I, think, I think it deserves an answer. And it's really simple. Um, I want you to know that my desire is that you would know God's Word. You know, I have to say, I grew up in uh, somewhat biblically illiterate. And, and by that, I mean, I don't mean that my, my parents dropped the ball. My parents uh, did all the things right. They checked all the boxes. They, I was a church kid. I heard all the sermons. I, I went to all the Sunday schools. I was a major part of youth group, even went to uh, uh, the, the college groups. But I feel like for the most of my life, all the way through there, I just sort of got pieces of the puzzle. You ever feel like that? Like I never got the whole picture, like the, the grand story of what God was doing in his redemptive purposes, we'll say. You know, let's say Sunday mornings are the only Bible you get, and I pray that's not the case. But let's say the next 25 minutes is all you get all week long. If all you hear from this pulpit is how to be a good wife or a great parent or a, or a good son or a good grandparent, but you miss the part about Jesus coming to save the lost, of God's plan to save his people from Genesis all the way to Revelation, then you miss the main course of the meal. Congratulations, you got a few appetizers. You never made it to the good stuff. And I think so often we, we see in today's culture the Bible as like a self-help book when really we need to see it as a God-saved book. You feel me? So my answer to that question is... Uh, is typically that I like to focus on the story of God's word because it keeps me accountable as your pastor to say, focus on the things that matter. You know, the temptation is to take the, the headline of the week and to sort of make it our focus. And that gets the eyeballs, that gets the ears, and certainly there's time for that. But I think there's a better way, and the better way is to start with Scripture and let the, let the Bible speak to the headline of the week. So I just give you that, that side tangent before we jump in so that next time you get asked, and maybe you have or maybe you will, about well, when is Spring Hill going like, to talk about a topic like, I don't know, money or critical race theory or, or identity in politics? Um, here's your answer. I'll give it to you. Here's what you can share. We will talk about those things when God's word brings it up. And, um, you know, we're, we're a one-issue church, and I, I'll stand on this. In fact, I'll die on this. We are a one-issue church, and that is Christ and him crucified. Um, and here's what I love about the book of James. Here's why I give you all that. James is a candy jar packed full of practical salt of the earth wisdom for life. If you would rather a, a topic sermon series, you're going to love this series because James is, I would argue James is the most hands-on book you could study in all the scriptures. 
you know, turn to somewhere like Romans and you get this long-winded like theological discourse before you get to the point, right? You turn to James and just bam, to the point. You get the nugget right there. And remember, James was the brother of Jesus. He should know. That means he knew Christ like no one else could. But it wasn't until the resurrection that he actually put his faith in him. And after that moment, he was sold out. So, so he writes this letter to these, these early Christians, and they're experiencing really the first fruits of persecution. And he pins it, he says, to the scattered Christians, the, the dispersed Christians who are now lost. And we're going to find, um, it's a little bit odd though, James writes 54 imperatives in one letter to these people. That's 54 do's and don'ts in just five chapters. So this morning, uh, let's, we're going to open up to James 1, verses 1 to 18. We're going to read through that, that first section, but really we're just going to focus on the first four verses and kind of bounce around after that. But James 1, verses 1 through 18. Let's hear now God's word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like the flower of grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of all of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. So imagine what it would be like if tomorrow, everything you had was gone. Imagine if tomorrow you were forced to leave your home, your finances were depleted, your employment ceased, and all you had now to your name was a backpack, in a suitcase. And after weeks of wandering sort of aimlessly outside of town, you, you stumble on a place entirely unfamiliar for you. You can see this church steeple down the street of this foreign land that you've come to. And as you get closer, there's a sign at the front entry that says, help is here. So you get in line with hundreds of others 
You finally walk into this gorgeous sanctuary, just adorned with all the golden paintings you can think of. You're handed a pillow and a scratchy blanket, and you realize that the pews have been converted into makeshift beds. And as you lay down your head, you wonder, what now? Budapest, Hungary is about a day's drive from the border of Ukraine. And there's this little church in the heart of town known as the Parish of St. Michael. Just last Sunday, they gathered up hundreds of refugees for the celebration of what was their Orthodox Easter. The place was packed wall to wall. And you can imagine as the, the church bells rang and the Easter lilies lined the sanctuary, there was something amiss. Everyone knew the unmistakable elephant that filled that room last Sunday. You know, instead of smiles and laughter, there was more like quivering lips and tears. Instead of fancy Easter dresses, there were just worn down faces, torn up jeans. One of the attenders, she said it like this. She said, we're all happy for the resurrection, but we don't have happiness in our hearts right now. I want us to read those words from James. And this time I want you to think about how those words would fall on you if you were that person sitting in the pew with nothing left to your life. James says this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now level with me, that seems a bit tone deaf, right? Consider it pure joy, Rejoice, for your financial hardships have finally come to you. You're finally homeless. Your life is in ruins. All that you've worked for, gone. Your family is scattered, wallet empty. Rejoice. You might call that the contrarian view. Here's why I put those words in that context. Some 2,000 years ago, James wrote this letter in almost the same kind of scenario. It wasn't Budapest or, or Ukraine. This time, it was an invasion of Christian homes and persecution of believers in the city of Jerusalem. And look how he starts this letter. Look at this in verse one. To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. That reference, 12 tribes, it was James' way of saying, to all of God's redeemed people, to the church now scattered among the ancient world. James says, greetings. As I said, he's writing one of the oldest letters in the New Testament. And in the book of Acts, you, you really get this accurate picture of what, what's at play here. Look at the context of this in verse 8. This is what's going on while he writes this. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. You skip to verse 2, you find out Stephen, who was one of the greatest men in the early church, has just been stoned to death. Verse two says, godly men are burying him and mourning deeply for him. And then we're told by verse three, Saul is destroying the church, going from house to house, dragging off men and women and putting them in prison. Jewish Christians overnight had no choice but to leave everything they knew behind. They were scattered among the nations lost, wondering what now? And so James writes in this open letters. He says, brothers and sisters tossed to and far. Listen to this but he doesn't give him a sympathy card. It, it sounds more like a birthday card. Rejoice, consider it joy that you're facing these hardships. You know, it's interesting to see those two words in the same sentence because we, we typically don't put those two words together. And I think about that word 
joy, like the last thing that would come to my mind is some kind of heartache. How about you? When I say the word joy, what do you think of? You know, maybe we think of like a baby giggling with her mother or that, that hard-earned promotion at work or Christmas morning as the, the grandkids unpack all the, the packages or that downed elk at dusk. James writes to the 12 tribes lost in the dispersion, when you meet trial, face it with joy. You know, it's interesting. I, I feel like as Westerners, we're really not accustomed to that idea, right? You know, in some respects, this is one of those passages that I think we can, we can quickly make ethereal and just put on the shelf for someone else. Like, that's a great lesson, but I feel like that's really for those brothers and sisters overseas, the ones we, we hear about on the news. The idea of suffering and trials. We don't have it like they do. But here's the, the one and main point of this sermon. To follow Christ is to face trials of every kind for his name. If we are following Jesus and we're doing it right, that is to face trials of every kind for his namesake. You know, that doesn't exactly sell really well against the American dream, right? And yet the more that I study God's word, the, the more I find this is a biblical reality. Look at this in James 15. These are Jesus' words. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of it. And therefore the world hates you. James adds the additional thought. And when they hate you, count it as joy. You know, we might not know what it is to have to run on our, for our lives on, on account of our faith. But, but I'm going to say this and you can push back. It seems to me that if we are not facing trials for the cause of our convictions, if you are not in some way, some sort of struggle in your life against the grain of this world, you're probably doing it wrong. Afshin Zayafet is the lead pastor of Providence Church in Frisco, Texas. And Afshin grew up in an Iranian home in a Muslim family. And early on, they, they moved from Iran to Houston in the midst of the Iranian Revolution. And as a part of this transition, Afshin was given an English tutor to help him acclimate. Somewhere along the way, she gave him a Bible because when you're in the South, that's, that's how they do it, right? You want to learn English? We'll start with God's Word, Bible Belt. Over the years, Afshin learned to read it aloud. And he said somewhere along the way, those seeds that were planted all of his life came to, came to fruition at about his senior year in high school. God got a hold of him and he gave his life to Christ. And Afshin said that day, that moment, his entire life changed. Nothing would be the same. But nothing like you and I would think. There's no cake. There's no celebration. That day he became enemy number one. He was canceled. Nolan Void. His father disowned him. His family, his sister denied him. His father said, son, get this. Think about these words. He said, you are dead to me. Afshin said his, his hands were shaking and he told his father he wanted to be his past, a pastor. And then his father was relentless to him. He said, you are now the biggest stain in my life. He said, as long as I live, I will be ashamed of who you are. You are not my son. Afshin often questions in his talks and in his books why Christians are so afraid of being canceled. He said, that's my life. I've already lived it. You know, it's hard to imagine, but I think here's the part where we have to pay close attention. Look again at this verse two. 
James didn't say count it joy if you meet trials. He said count it joy when you meet trials. You know, as I said in the introduction, James is this book that's written so that we could test our faith and our actions, right? Our actions should follow our faith. And so this is a book where we can see whether or not we, we live our faith, whether or not our actions align with who we say we are. And I think one of the tests by which we might measure out our, our walk with Jesus is to look back and count the number of trials you faced as a result of standing firm in your faith. You know, but by and large, this is not a popular viewpoint in Western Christianity. You know, we, we want to believe that the society around us should, should mold to our likeness, should look and act like we do. And when it doesn't, in many respects, the church has also made this mistake of conforming to the culture around it rather than standing apart from it. But here's the reality. The reality is you can't walk both paths, right? Jesus said, if you truly love me, then the world at some point is gonna despise you. Which means we should be prepared, not if trials will come, but when. You know, it's not that we go around and grab for opportunities to be a thorn in someone's side, to be, become famous on, on Twitter or Instagram, right? To, to play the martyr card for some merit. But it is to point out, to realize that the ways of our lives should reflect the ways of Christ. And therefore, to live your life against the grain of the world means discomfort. It might even mean heartache and suffering. And if we're honest, we'd rather not go there. I have many stories, even within this body. And each time I thought of a story to share, because it's, it's happening in our midst, I thought, no, I can't share that one. I can't share that one. That one's got to stay confidential. But I had a friend who was asked to lead a hospital's grand opening years ago on behalf of a, a rotary club years ago. And he was a businessman. He was also a, a, a Christian. People knew that. And so they, they asked him as a leader, they said, would you say a few, years, uh, a few words at this opening? And he said, Sure. And as they got to thinking, you know, churches and hospitals have a long history together. They said, what, what if you would open it up with like a blessing? That might be good. And so he was fired up. He called me. We talked about like what, how this prayer might go. And at first he was, he was all kinds of excited. But then a few weeks later came part two. You know, politics got involved and they said, hey, um, when you pray this prayer, we need you to keep it really generic. You could start out with like, say, say something like great spirit. And we thought, hmm. They said, and when you end, if you could just like, just again, keep it really base level, just give an amen and, and leave it at that. And right there, he was faced with this decision, right? You could easily skirt that. You could pray a generic prayer, do what they ask. You know who you're praying to, no big deal. But the more he thought on it, the more he realized, if I refuse to pray in Jesus' name, I'm denying him outright. He went to his boss, he said, I'm out. And let me tell you, from that day forward, he was out. The more you dig into the scriptures, the more this reality comes to life. Look at this in 1 Peter 4.12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering, as though something strange were happening, but rejoice. 2 Corinthians 7.4, Paul says, in my afflictions, I'm overwhelming with joy. Acts 5.40, the, the apostles are told to keep quiet, right? They're beat up and then they're let go. Keep your mouth shut about your faith. We're told, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy 
to suffer dishonor for his name. One more for good measure. Second Timothy says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will find persecution. Now again, let's keep this real, right? No one in this room is dying for their faith. And yet it seems as, as you read through the scriptures, we will at least face some kind of trial. Awkwardness at best, bullying all the way to death at worst. And so the question then, that, that begs a, a really strong question of how do we rejoice in our hardships? When you face those trials, how, how do you logically explain that kind of joy? And I want to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at three reasons, kind of defending three reasons why that adds up, why we can look at a trial in our life and rejoice. And the first one is this. Your trials are the testing of your faith. Your trials are the testing of your faith. Count it all joy, James says, when you meet trials of various kinds because it is the testing of your faith. And here's why that's a good thing. Here's the way we can rejoice in that. A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. Isn't that good? A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. I wish I came up with that. It's not mine. You know, it's one thing to say, I, I trust the tightrope, right? It's another entirely different thing to take the first step. A healthy faith is a tested faith. You think about gold for a minute. You know, how do you know the difference between pure gold and fool's gold? There's, there's really one basic way to find out. You have to test it. To prove it's real, it, it, it has to be found out. In geology class, I learned this early on, you do something called a streak test. And if it's gold, you scratch it along a piece of paper, it'll come out yellow. If it's pyrite, you scratch it along a piece of paper, it'll come out black. But it's not until the test that you begin to know. Spurgeon once said it like this. He said, an untested faith may be a true faith, but it's sure to be a small faith. It's a stagnant faith. You know, growing up, my, my cousins lived in the backwaters of the Mississippi, and every Christmas we'd walk down to the, the water, and we'd go skating on the ice, and they wouldn't even think about it. They'd just be out and gone. And every year, for some reason, early on, right on the shore, I would lock up. Like, I couldn't do it because I knew there was a chance if I went out, I would fall in. And they'd laugh at me, right? They would say, Ryan, there's cars that drive on this ice. You're safe. But it wasn't until I saw it that I could step out, right? For the, for the first few hours, I was just a spectator watching hockey, the sidelines. What made my cousins so sure, what made them go out and skate so effortlessly, it, it was that they had already skated on the ice, right? All winter long, they had tested it many times before. They had seen the ice was trustworthy. They, they knew. But an untested faith is a shallow faith. When you experience trials, James says, that's when God begins doing his work in you. I mean, just think about this with me. When was the last time you had to entirely rely on God's strength and peace and comfort and hope in your life? I guarantee you it wasn't when life was going good. Right, that moment when Peter called, was called out by Christ in the wind and the waves, he, he said, leave the boat, come to me. Because it's easy to trust Jesus from the boat. It's easy to trust God from the shore when the sun is shining. Our faith is tested when we face the trial. Which leads me to my second point, and that is that if that trial is testing your faith, then testing in your faith leads to endurance in your faith. 
That word steadfast that James uses in the, in the Greek, it's hupomone. It means to endure, to persevere. Pardon the overused analogy, but like think about a runner, a marathon runner. You know, the, the first day you go out, if you're preparing for a, a marathon, you're, you're wheezing, right? You're puking your guts out. Maybe you make it a few miles and you're thinking, why am I doing this? The next day you run a bit more, things get a little bit easier. The next day, a bit more, a bit harder. And by the end, you're running the full marathon, right? Why? Because with each test, each run, each challenge, you have an endurance produced inside of you. And so it is with our faith. Now, this isn't something that we do, right? It's something that God does in us. We count our trials as joy. Why? Because we know that the testing of our faith is the producer of endurance in us. It's quite literally the, the tool that the Holy Spirit uses to increase our fortitude in him. For contrast, look at the opposite picture. Look at this in verse six. James says, but the one who doubts, the one who lacks faith is like a, a wave of the seas driven and tossed by the wind. That person is a double-minded man. Unstable in all their ways. In other words, life without faith is insecure, right? It, it's unsound. James says that person has two different minds. When trials come their ways, they don't endure it. They, they don't feel better about life. They're tossed to and fro. They're unstable. It reveals their doubt. See, we count the trials of our life as joy because one, trials equal the testing of our faith. Two, testing of our faith brings endurance in him. That brings me to the last point, and that is that endurance brings maturity and faith. Look at this again in verse four. James says, let steadfast have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I love how one commentary said it. It said that word complete, it refers to a thousand parts of us honed, shaped, tampered, and brought together for the dynamic whole in Jesus. If you want to get technical, we call it the doctrine of sanctification. That is by the work of the Holy Spirit in you, you are now enabled more and more to die to sin and to live unto righteousness. To trust less in my abilities in the midst of this situation and more in his. To think less about how I'm going to get through this day and get through this trial and more about, man, how he's held me fast. And notice this, this part's important. It's not the trial that produced the maturity it's God's perseverance in your life through the trial. To look back and see God's faithfulness to be tested is to be forged, to be hardened. Many of you know the story of baby Liam and Ty and Jill. And uh, if you don't know, Liam was born with a heart defect. And um, as a pastor, I get a unique window into someone's life that many of us don't see. I asked Jill if I could throw him under the bus this morning. and She said, go for it. But our journey together started the day I met Ty and, and Jill and Kimber in my office. And I remember Jill was pretty fresh in her faith. Not even baptized yet. She was terrified as Ty held her hand. They knew what was to come, but really had no idea. She said to me, I, I want to be baptized. They wanted Kimber to be baptized alongside her. She said, I want to mark that we're not going to do this alone. Right? So then on Sunday morning, you see us all up on stage and we're baptizing Kimber and, and Jill and then we sent them on their way down to Denver for their birth. Most of you did not know the McDonald family at that time in their life. And then as we sent them on, we watched from, a fire as they, from afar as they went through a fire we can't even fathom. 
right? They went through emotions most of us can't even process. They, they watched Liam go through surgery after surgery, countless nights of touch and go, 345 days in the hospital. They walked through emotions that, that, are, that were impossible to endure. And no, they didn't face persecution from the outside, but their trial was certainly more real than most. So I'm praying and I'm wondering as their pastor, how is God gonna keep their faith through this? One day I got this phone call. Jill says to me, what's that scripture that you pray at the end of every worship service? And I said, what, what scripture, what are you talking about? She said, you know, the, the benediction. I said, oh yeah, the ironic blessing. Yeah, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make you faith. She said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me the words of that. I wanna put up a big poster in Liam's room. I want the nurses to know they're loved. And I'm thinking, man, if my boy was in that bed, I'm not sure I'd be in that place. And then Ty and Jill went on to explain to me scriptures that they've been connecting with this journey, how, how they had made a playlist of their favorite worship songs that we were singing on Sunday morning so they could have it playing in their ears throughout the week. Soon after that, we, we baptized little Liam together. Up on this stage, I had my, my Zoom and my laptop open as the, the chaplain did the work on our behalf. We did so because it was evidence that Liam's life was likely coming to an end. And I'll be honest, I shut that laptop of that Zoom call and I sat here on my knees and I asked God, Lord, how are you gonna see this family through this trial? How in the world will they keep their faith? So soon after, little Liam goes to be with Christ. And I remember I asked Ty that question. I said, Ty, how are you keeping it together right now? How is it with your soul? And Ty told me, he said, Ryan, if God is not in control, where else do we turn? So months later, Ty and Jill return home. And I have to say firsthand, I have never seen the evidence of God moving in someone's life in a stronger way in my entire life. You can look at them in the front row because they told me I could do it. <laughs> and see how God has forged someone in the fire. I asked Jill months ago, I said, how are you doing? She said, I know where my son is and one day I'm gonna go join him there. And I wanna know all about the God who brought him there. I wanna know all about that place called heaven. Let's redefine the idea of a good life for a minute. It's not a life that somehow escapes the hardships, right? It can't be or we would never grow in faith. It is not a life that ducked and dodged all the sufferings and the trials and got out easy and unscathed because without that, you would never know what it is to trust. But a life, James says, that counts every trial as joy is blessed. Verse 12, he says it as such. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. To follow Jesus is to live joy-filled trials in this life. Why? Because trials are God's instrument of bringing us closer to him. Romans 8, the, remember Paul? He was the one persecuting the Christians, the one scattering them around the nations. Look at how Paul comes full, first, full circle of Romans 8, 28. He says, and we know that those who love God for them, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And my prayer for us this week and for eternity is that we would keep that perspective come what may.
Pray with me, will you? God, for every known trial in this room, we know that there are countless unknown trials. For every known struggle, for every known heartache, for every known trial, or we know many more, only you know. And God, we, we, we gulp, we sort of gasp at this command that you've given us that from the very beginning of this letter, count it joy. Lord, we just confess that's a high calling. It's so much easier to get bogged down in the why me, Lord, and why now, and why this? God, we pray that you would keep us mindful that as we follow you, it was not a free pass for an easy life. Lord, but rather you promised us that even if we walk in the valley of the shadow of death, you are with us, that you are doing a good work in us still, that you call us to count it all as joy because in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our struggles, you bring us steadfast faith, a tested faith that can endure the storm. So Lord, do that in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, all God's people said.